Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Why are investors turning their backs on private banks? Why will some low-cost funds land you with a much higher tax bill? And why should you pay fees to spend your own money on holiday? Answers to all of these questions to come in this week's FT Money Show. I'm Matthew Vincent, and I'll be giving the lowdown on all of these money matters in downloadable form with my colleague from FT Money, Steve Lodge. Hello. And two special studio guests, both making very welcome returns to the show. Justin Modre, founder of financial website CandidMoney.com. Hello. And former FT Money colleague, who is now the FT's retail banking correspondent, Charlene Goff. Hello. So let's start with the money news. This week, new figures show that the amount of money entrusted to private banks by wealthy investors fell by 60% last year. According to the annual review of the global wealth management industry carried out by consultants at the Scorpio Partnership, institutions received an average of $900 million of net new investment from clients in the 2009 financial year, but that was almost two-thirds down on 2008. Scorpio said that the assets under management at these banks rose by an average of 17%, making up for the sharp fall suffered in the previous year. But this recovery was weaker than that felt by global equity markets, with the MSCI World Index, for example, growing by 27% over the same period. Charlene, these figures seem to me to be a bit of an indictment of private banks. Is that fair? I think that is fair. I think it's been the second really tough year for these private banks. Obviously, they were hit very hard in 2008 and uh, clients uh, saw real damage to their portfolios being done. Uh, And 2009 was still really tough for them as I think they really failed to win back trust. Um, They attracted about $900 million of new money in the year, but that was considerably down, about 60% down on 2008, which was already considerably down on 2007. So really not great figures for for the wealth for the wealth managers and it looks to me as if uh, this issue of trust is is really becoming uh, an ongoing problem um is there anything in the uh, in the research that scorpio did that, that backs that up well i think we've really seen trust hit across the financial services industry i mean obviously it's been a time when you know with with we've seen lots of bank failures you know it's been a really volatile time in the markets people have just been very wary about where they're putting their money um several of the really top private private banks so bank of america and ubs you know fell into quite considerable challenges over the over the financial crisis ubs particularly just saw this huge outflow of of money so i think really it's these the very big ones that are sort of 
losing market share and some of the smaller ones, uh, the boutique managers and so on, you know, maybe picking that up a little bit. Um, but I mean, there were a few br- uh, bright spots in there as well, like actual assets under management increased in value. So, you know, people who did keep their money within private banks saw some recovery. Um, so that was a, that was a bit of good news there. Um, but, you know, the banks are seeing considerable strain on profits um, and higher costs. So um, hopefully uh, things will improve a bit this year. Well, I'm sure the clients certainly think that. Just taking those assets under management figures. Now, th- there are two ways in which assets under management can increase. Obviously, there can be more inflows. And we know that there weren't well, inflows were down with $900 million of net new money going in. But also assets under management can increase if the investment managers are very clever and they go into the right asset classes and they, you know, they, they make a profit. Yeah. Now, we saw uh, global indices, uh, equity indices go up by 27%, but these people kind of missed a yeah. large chunk of that recovery. Yeah. And that's what they're paid to do, isn't it? Well, exactly that. I mean, and you would hope um, that they would be able to at least claw that but you know the value back for their clients I mean the trouble was they didn't sort of move out of risky assets in enough time so they were hit by the downturn and then they sort of didn't go back in time to benefit from the upturn so they've sort of had the double whammy there for, for clients when they've been too cautious when they should have maybe been a bit more aggressive and they were caught out when things collapsed so clients definitely have a, a, a good reason to be very uh, disappointed with their wealth managers. And just finally, were there any sort of new kids on the block, any new entrants that came into this research that you know are winning some clients over? Yeah, I mean, actually, the top five remained exactly the same. Bank of America um, leading the pack, and then UBS was was the second. Morgan Stanley actually saw very strong growth in assets under management because it's um, t- had a tie up with um, Smith Barney. But there were two new entrants: Royal Bank of Canada and Pictet, the Swiss right. private bank that um, has become a bit more mainstream. Royal Bank of Canada, uh, the reason it had not appeared before was really one of transparency that the consultancy could gather the information it needed for it to make an appearance so um those two new ones otherwise all the all the main players still there charlene thanks very much uh, indeed for that uh, run through uh, the private banks and wealth managers and for more uh, on the performance of their portfolios um, look out for the article in ft money with this weekend's ft and online at ft.com forward slash money still to come on the show why should you pay for the privilege of spending your own cash on your summer holiday. First, though, low-cost exchange-traded funds, or ETFs. It's now 20 years since the first ETF was launched and 10 years since the first one was listed on the London Stock Exchange to provide private investors with a way to track the FTSE 100 index at a low cost of around half a percent a year. Now, there are more than 2,000 ETFs around the world and they hold more than $1 trillion worth of assets. But in spite of this global success, there is a little-known sting in the tail for UK investors seeking a cost-effective investment. Some ETFs can land you with a much bigger tax bill than you imagined. Steve, uh, what is this tax catch? Well, it's a very big tax catch, Matthew, for those ETFs that have this problem. And it's that the investment gains are taxed as income. So you make a profit on the fund. Um, when you encash your holding, you could actually pay income tax at up to 50%, which compares very, you know, in, um, at current income, depending on your current income tax rate, which of course compares with CGC rates even after the budget increase of at most 28%. And don't forget there with CGT as well, you do get the, um, the £10,100 allowance. 
So there are. This is the case for most ETFs that are listed on U.S. or European stock markets, and even some that are listed on the U.K. stock market from indeed the biggest player as well, iShares. Justin,、um, this is something that not many listeners may be aware of.、Uh, do users of your website know about this? Did you get questions about it? I've had a couple of questions. I must admit, I didn't. You know, I've long known about obviously offshore funds in general, but I really didn't realise the situation was quite so bad with regard to ETFs until I started getting a few questions about it.、Um, what it boils down to is the inland revenue in the UK、um, basically taxes funds based on whether they have distributor or non-distributor status. Um, or more recently, reporting or non-reporting status, and very simply, it means if a fund pays up most of its income, it has distributor status, and if it actually reports that income to the revenue instead, it has reporting status. Provided a fund does that, then it's taxed really as it would be if you held a UK fund. But if it doesn't, and as Steve said, quite a few ETFs don't,、um, then you get clobbered with capital gains tax instead, and that's a pretty major issue. Clobbered with income tax. Clobbered with income. Sorry, with income tax. Yeah, it's absolutely crucifying,、mm. isn't it,、uh, Justin, for someone who has someone who has these holdings, of course, in their portfolio. I mean, it's not the case. It's not a problem. We should emphasise if you hold these in an ISA or a SIP. That's correct. It's if you hold them outside of a tax wrapper,、um, basically on their own. And I think it's a big problem in particular because in days gone by, if you bought an offshore fund. Um, typically, it would have been through an advisor, and the advisor you would hope would have would have pointed this out to you, and obviously avoided、uh, non-distributor or non-reporting funds.、Um, but when you buy ETFs, typically most people will do that via an online stockbroker,、um, and if you do that, it's very difficult quite often to actually see any flag whatsoever that actually highlights this before you buy. And so a lot of people will have unwittingly bought an ETF because they thought, you know, quite rightly, it's a low-cost, good vehicle to access a particular market. Totally、um, not aware of the fact they could get taxed to the hilt. And the underlying fund providers, Justin.、Mm. I mean, I, I spoke to iShares this week, the biggest, the biggest ETF provider in the world, who said they did a strong job of communicating this tax difference. I mean, would you agree with that? <laughs>、um, no, I wouldn't. I mean, my, my biggest fear is if you go onto the various ETF websites,、um, you generally have to look on what's called a simplified prospectus, which is a, a, usually a PDF full of lots of small print to actually work out whether or not. A particular ETF has this type of status.、Um, it's very rare to actually see it highlighted clearly. In fact, I haven't seen any of the groups highlighted clearly on the actual fund、um, fact sheet or homepage itself. So, is the answer to avoid to go against the grain and say no? Let's not have these new things called ETFs. Let's avoid them altogether. I mean, some advisors、sure. I think favour. Index tracker funds and say they're cheaper and that's all you need.、Sure. In general, no. I mean, I'm quite a big fan of ETFs. I think they have a very valuable role to play. But the key is always, always check what the tax status is before you buy. I mean, I say the vast majority of funds on UK stock market are probably okay,、um, but there are some that you could get caught out on. So always, always check. And if you can't see it、um, on the website or brochure generally, then look in what's called the simplified prospectus, and it will definitely say there what the status is. The thing I wonder though is what actually happens if you buy. The wrong type of ETF, and you find yourself liable to income tax. And let's say you are a、mm-hmm. high earner, and you are now paying fifty percent tax, but you you mistakenly put it on your tax return as、mm-hmm. something that should be taxable to capital gains tax, like any normal unit <laughs> trust. Yes, exactly as you as、mm-hmm. you would do normally for all your other investments over and above your、um, annual、uh, allowance. What's what's HMRC? Uh, revenue and customs. What, what are they going to do? They, do you think they'll spot it? How can they know? Well, I spoke to one wealth manager this week who's reckoned that thousands of people had probably put these things down as subject to capital gains tax without knowing any better. Some people, of course, may have put them down, thinking, "Well, I'll just see if I can get away with it." And their view, and I shouldn't name them, of course, thought that HMRC wouldn't have a clue. 
I mean, they'd probably just be grateful for the tax. But it does raise the question, and if HMRC were more aware of this issue, that they started to go back into people's uh, submissions, returns, and say, well, actually, under self-assessment, so you're required to know the tax rules, however convoluted they may be, and you haven't paid the right amount of tax, you've been tax evading. I think you're right, Stephen. What scares me is obviously HMRC is under increasing pressure to raise taxes given our government's budgetary deficit. And so I think this is going to become more and more more of a common problem. So it's even more important to make sure you're investing in the right type of ETF. And uh, if you'd like a full listing of those ETFs that are liable to income tax and best avoided, uh, read Steve's article in FT Money, which is with this weekend's FT and online at ft.com forward slash money. And finally today, holiday money. With the end of the school term upon us, the nation's families will be flying out on their summer breaks this week. But many will be paying far too much whenever they settle a bill, withdraw cash or buy their souvenirs. Most credit and debit cards charge around 3% for foreign currency transactions by worsening a customer's exchange rate. And they make an additional admin fee of about 2.5% on withdrawals of cash from overseas cash points. Steve, in this age of electronic instant fund transfers, are these charges really necessary? No, Matthew, but they're a great way of banks um, improving their profitability. I mean, foreign exchanges, the margins on foreign exchange are huge, actually, for when they're passed on to private investors. I mean, you mentioned some of those charges. Most people won't be aware of that 3% charge because, as you say, it's, it's a worsening of the exchange rate. So it's built into the exchange rate they give you for your purchase. It's just sort of hidden. I mean, exactly. It is a hidden charge. Yeah. Um, there are other charges, though. Um, sometimes when you use your debit card to just go down the road, you, you're off to buy me one beer. You pay 10 euros for that beer, but you also pay an extra pound to... Uh, use your card. I then send you back to the bar and you pay another pound for that charge and so on. So, so you can actually pay per transaction as well. Um, and of course, if you use a credit, well, if you use a credit card and withdraw cash from an ATM, thinking that's an easy way of getting my euros or my dollars out, then you'll pay interest typically on that cash. And using any card at all, typically you'll pay an admin fee as well for that withdrawal. So there are a whole range of charges. So that, I mean, that's why this Halifax card is good and is among a small group that don't have either that loading charge or indeed that um, currency withdrawal charge. However, you still will pay interest on any currency you take out of the um, overseas cash point. So what is this Halifax card you mentioned? It sounds very good. What's it's it? called Clarity, which okay. is probably... And this is new? Yes, yes, which is uh, the, the aim being fewer fees. There are a range of other no-fees Ish, uh, features to it as well um, but even better I mean there are other cards out there Santander has once a similar card called Santander Zero the nationwide building site has long been known for having cards that don't have these loadings and have reduced foreign currency foreign usage charges the really good thing about this one though is if you're an existing or prepared to be a Halifax current account customer then you can actually get paid an extra £5 for using this card as a kind of rebate reward. That's a cashback card, yeah. if you like. Um, yes, indeed. Or similar. But, but, but similar, but not related to your spending. And as much as you get £5, if you spend £300, um, anything over, you still get the £5. So for some people who already have um, Halifax's popular reward currency accounts and are already getting £5 a month... Um, they could effectively get £10 a month from the, the bank just for using its products uh, for normal usage. So this sounds to me like possibly the most cost-effective way to spend money abroad. Are there any other ways of going about it other than taking a sort of suitcase 
full of banknotes with you. Well, we mentioned Santander Zero, um, Nationwide range. Justin, I mean, have I missed any of the big ones? I think Saga have quite a good card, but then you have to be a, a to over be, 50. That's right. I think you've, you've hit the main ones there, Steve. Um, but the, the key is obviously to plan ahead and actually do this in advance rather than just um, you know, think about it a week before we go on the holiday, mm. by which time it's too late to obviously apply for one of these mm. cards. Some people are fans of these prepaid cards as well, mm. but by definition you're loading money onto them before, so they're not quite as convenient, but they do allow you to lock into a particular exchange rate at the point you load the money. So if you want to do a bit of currency speculation while you're lying on the beach, <laughs> then, then that's they could be an option as well. As I'm sure some of our listeners will be doing. But uh, thanks very much for that, Steve. And for full details of that Halifax Clarity card, plus the alternatives from Santander and Nationwide, take a look at Steve's Deal of the Week in this Saturday's FT Money section. But that's all for this week's FT Money Show. Remember, you will find weekday news updates and all of these stories on our website, ft.com forward slash money. And if you have a question about any of our articles or anything on this podcast, or indeed any aspect of your personal finances that you would like some guidance on, just email us. We will answer all of your questions or ask financial experts like Justin to do so on the reader's question page of FT Money. This service is free of charge and anonymous, so just send your questions in to money at ft.com. I'll be back next week with another financial lowdown in downloadable form. So until then, it's goodbye from me, it's goodbye from Steve and our two special studio guests, Charlene Goff and Justin Modray of CandidMoney.com. Goodbye. Goodbye. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.